0: Thank you, Helen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you open up to the book of Romans, chapter, 9, chapter 11 is where we find ourselves this morning. Um, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, are chapters that deal with Paul's conversation with his kinsmen, the, the, the people of Israel, the Jews. And he's trying to relate to them how God has now expanded the gateway to even the Gentiles to come into a relationship with him. And there's been a lot of debate going on back then about aren't we just supposed to be God's people or is he letting others in as well without having to go through the regulations of becoming a Jew. Chapter 11 is his final chapter as he deals with his, his brothers of Israel. Agi uh, Packrash. He's a, a, a minister up at a church called The Well in North Liberty, Iowa. In one of his sermons, he told how he would drive by this farm and then in, in this in this massive field of corn, that there was just this one lone tree out in the middle of it. And just in this open field, there was just this one tree and and Prior to his coming, he was told that that field used to be a forest of trees, and all of them had been cut down except for this one. And it really puzzled him as to why there was this one tree remained standing, and its branches reached up and were spreading out through the field. And the mystery was solved when he learned the, the purpose for that tree, and that it was spared Prakash said that the farmer had left one tree standing as a remnant of all the trees that had been there so that his animals and he could have shade and rest under the hot noonday sun as they'd be working in the fields. That's an interesting concept that he did. At times, I think we all may feel alone in the midst of a world around us. And we don't know why we are there by ourselves. Maybe it's soldiers that are coming back from combat on the battlefield. And they're coming home alive, and yet some, and at times many, of their fellow soldiers died on that field. And they question, why am I it? Why am I the only one left standing? There are people that are patients that go through some deadly diseases in our world and, 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 and they have made it through and they have, they have beat the cancers. And yet they know that there were other people who seemed to be better off than them at one point that lost. And they wonder, why is it that I alone have survived? Our scripture today tells us that God always has a remnant. He always has some that are left standing when everything else falls apart. A group of survivors, a a solid core of believers who trust in Him and who believe in Him, who put their faith in Him, and who will serve Him in spite of everybody else serving other gods. And it tells us that He has a purpose for each one of those people. Now so far in our study of the book of Romans, Paul has treated a problem that centers on this nation of Israel from two standpoints, right? In chapter 9, he has emphasized the sovereignty of God and that God has the ability to choose a people for himself to carry out his purposes that he has determined would take place in our world. And specifically, he chose the descendants of Abraham that later became the nation of Israel so that Jesus would be born in this world. Messiah would come, and he would come through this specific group of people. Now, regardless of their own righteousness, regardless of their own obedience to him, or, or whatever it was they did in their own personal lives, or even as a nation, God chose them because he wanted to make sure that they would come. Paul even refers to them in chapter 10, the last verse there, verse 21, as a disobedient and contrary people and yet God's used them in spite of their disobedience and their contrariness now we look at this and we see that these these things present for us some serious tension when it comes to Israel and, and and God's relationship with them will Israel's sin and their stubbornness defeat the purpose of God and what he has laid plans for even before the creation of this world? To this question now Paul turns, and his answer is going to dip into Israel's history a little bit, and it's going to look at what's encompassing her in the present, and will also reveal where they're going in the future. So that's what he's talking about here in this small section of his letter. So let's go back and let's kind of revisit this whole discussion about Israel and how it came into play in Paul's letter. In the first eight chapters, Paul has been bringing Israel into discussion about salvation because the salvation has come for those who are not Israelites, but for people who are Greeks, Gentiles, and God wants them now in a relationship with Him, and He's offering them their salvation And in that, it led to a perceived question in which Paul has answered as well that that the Jews, they might raise concerning God's faithfulness to them and his fairness to everything they've gone through. And now he's opening the door for somebody else with a relationship. And what he's anticipating is that they don't want to have a shared salvation with the rest of the world Matter of fact, the Jewish people, they thought that God was their God only and that the salvation he was offering was only for them simply because they were Jewish. It didn't matter what they did or or how they did things, but by the fact that they were in descendant of Abraham, they were God's people and they were going to get to go to heaven only because they were Jewish. And so in chapter 9, Paul sets the record straight by saying that the Old Covenant role of Israel was not about salvation, but it was about serving Him to fulfill His purpose, specifically about bringing the Savior into the world of human history. And yet, throughout all that Old Covenant period, whether an individual Jew or a whole nation was saved or not, it still depended on their faithful relationship with God. It was all faith-based and not obedience-based to the law because there was no way they were going to fulfill the law. They could not do it. No man has been able to do that. And the fact is, most Jews then and now, they have rebellious hearts and they refused God's saving grace. The truth is, though, God had not rejected them He hadn't turned His back on them. It was reality just the opposite. They were the ones that were rejecting God and turning their back on Him and going to other gods or just ignoring God altogether. Now, that brings us into Romans chapter 11 where we start today and Paul's discussion about the Jews in this new covenant era where Jesus has instituted a new relationship with Him in which we just celebrated with our communion it, it takes us back to this new covenant that he has said, I want this to happen now. And so he changed this covenant and this relationship. And Paul has already dressed this somewhat. And, and he's insinuated now in the past, and primarily in Romans 9, he insinuates that there are two Israels. There, in reality, is an Israel within Israel. So he says in Romans 9, 6, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, this Israel within an Israel is, is not just because they are physically birthed as a Jewish person. That makes the nation. That's that Israel. But the one within that Israel is is an Israel who is, by faith, Israel. They are, as he will call them, the remnant. He always has at least a lone survivor, if not more, who will be faithful to him. Now, those in this group called the remnant are also a part of the physical nation of Israel. All right. And in this new covenant era, the contrast to the old covenant era, I mean, it's crucial, to, I think, for us to really understand this. There's a difference between the old and the new covenants, or as we talk about Old Testament, and New Testament, there's a difference between the relationship that God has established with the old covenant and now with the new covenant. The new covenant is not just an updated covenant version of the old covenant. It's not just tweaked here and there to fit new circumstances. It is completely different. It's not a covenant based on law Paul tells us. This new covenant is a covenant based on grace. Totally different. So no longer is it about what you do to please God. It's about How you surrender to Him in a loving relationship and accept the wonderful gift that He offers of grace. So, this old covenant was between God and the nation of Israel as a whole. The Jews were very blessed as a nation in every way that was necessary to enable them to bring Messiah, Jesus, into this world. So he provided for them in a variety of ways, not just bringing them out of Egypt, not just providing a land for them, not just freeing them from the captivity when they were taken captive by other nations. He's provided for them all the way up to the point to make sure that what he desired in them would be fulfilled. That was Jesus coming into the world. And once Jesus entered into this world, Israel's purpose as a nation was fulfilled. It was completed. And so he's going to establish a new purpose and a new covenant with him through Jesus. The old covenant therefore came to an end, period. They were chosen for service, Paul says, but not for salvation. Now under this new covenant, it's not really about service but it's about salvation. Now, this remnant of Israel throughout the Old Covenant era, they were kept safe and they were secure by God to ensure that Jesus would be born. Now enters the New Covenant age. And we have to examine how the Jews are going to respond to this New Covenant. We know that under the New Covenant, God is going to relate to everyone, to all people, to all nations around the world, not just to a select few, all right? So he's telling us it's no longer just the Jews, but it's also Gentiles. And in the same manner, it's not just about nations any longer, it's about the individual. So he gets more personal with this aspect of faith. Now, whether a person is under this new covenant or not is not a matter about their physical birth into a nation. Rather, it's about them being born again into Christ. So, all individuals, whether they're Jew or Gentile, who accept and obey the gospel of Jesus, and they acknowledge that this is no longer about a system of law, but His grace. These are the ones who now belong to God as an Israel. These are now his people. And so this is the smaller group that he's speaking about in Romans 9, 6, about this Israel that is within Israel. So let's begin in our text. And the first thing we're going to discover that God, really, he never rejected Israel. He never turned his back on them. So we read chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I mean, this is the strongest way he can say, you've got to be kidding me. God never did that. God never turned his back on Israel. He says, I'm going to give you an example, for I myself am an Israelite, I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? So, who are his people? That's the question that begins in this task. Who are these that he may have rejected? And so Paul is talking specifically about the Jews in the sense of an individual rather than as a nation now. He's not rejected his people. The Greek word that is used here for that word reject is a word called apotheo. And what it means is not just to reject, but it means... To push away, to cast aside—it it means to, uh, to to repel or disown or repudiate. In other words, you do everything you can to get rid of it. You know, Taylor Swift says, "Shake it off." Right? God has not shaken off Israel. He has not gone and tried to get rid of them at all. All right. Now there are two possible ways that this could apply to the Jews. But Paul is denying both of these ways. On one hand, it could be, he's asking, did God reject, did He push away or cast aside the Jews as a nation? Well, no. He didn't do that. Let me give you an, an analogy here. Let's say you enter into a contract with a fellow to build your house. All right, Now, a lot of other individuals are going to come on besides him to make sure that your house is built. They're going to do all the foundation work. They're going to lay the concrete. They're going to begin to put together the structure and frame it out. Eventually it's going to be finished out and it's this wonderful thing. And once everybody has got their job done, do you look at him and say, I'm rejecting you? No, you don't do that. He's fulfilled his obligation with you. You, you take the house, you move in and you enjoy what has been done. Matter of fact, He doesn't continue to keep working. He's finished and he's fulfilled his contract and here are the keys. All right, a finished contract is not a rejection. And what has happened with Israel and God is they have fulfilled the contract he established with them and that was to bring Jesus into this world. He's not rejecting them. He's saying, thank you for fulfilling the contract we set up. Now, I want to establish another contract with you. And this one's based on grace. You see, likewise, God used this Jewish nation under their covenant, under their contract, once it was fulfilled then it came to an end. Therefore, the nation finished the task at hand. Why he had established them as a nation to begin with. That was the only reason he called Abraham out of that land and said, I'm going to take you to a place that I'm going to show you. That's the only reason why he made a contract as well with his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his boys, the 12 of them, and the nation grew. It was to fulfill the contract of bringing Messiah, who he had talked to Adam and Eve about way back in Genesis at the beginning of history. Contract is fulfilled. God kept his word. And so we see in 1 Samuel 12, the Lord, he says, will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And in Psalm 94, 14, it says simply the same thing, where it says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Now, on the other hand, did God Reject. Did he push away, cast away, repudiate, dispel his, his own people, the Jews, who wanted salvation? No. Matter of fact, Paul affirms that he was probably more Jewish than most of them. So he, he says, I myself am an Israelite. Right. I am a descendant of Abraham. I can trace my heritage and my lineage I come from the tribe of Benjamin. Now you have to understand, there was a period in time when Israel split and became two kingdoms. It was after Solomon, his son and the general and the people divided and turned into two different nations. There was a northern kingdom which was made up of ten tribes and there was a southern kingdom which was made up of two. The tribe of Judah whom the king was from and then also the tribe of Benjamin who had nothing to gain in all of this. But they stayed faithful to God to be able to worship Him at the temple where He wanted them to worship. They went against the rest of the nation to stay faithful to God. And we know that soon after that, the other nation began to worship other gods and they set up another temple up in Dan and they began to offer up sacrifices that were detestable to God. But Benjamin, what a tribe. So he says, I am a real Israelite. He said, hey, see, I'm probably the most Jewish of all you Jews. And God did not reject me. In Philippians chapter 3, verse, verse 5, Paul has to brag about his heritage to the people there in Philippi. And so he says, hey, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As a matter of fact, he says, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I mean, he's somebody who strictly obeyed the law and became a teacher of the law. He says, how much more Jewish can I be? So again, God does not reject the Jews. Rather, it is the majority of the Jews who are rejecting God. Paul says in Romans eleven two, too, God hasn't rejected His own people whom He foreknew. What does foreknowledge have to do with this? Well, remember, foreknowledge, we talked about this before, means being aware of or knowing about something before it ever takes place. God in His omniscience, in His ability to understand things before they even happen, we hear that He chose you before the creation of the world before you were even a twinkle in your mama's eye, God decided he was going to put his grace upon you. And he knew about you and all the decisions that you're going to make in life. He knew the choice and the cause for who you would fight. That's his foreknowledge. So what did God foreknow about his people? Or or even about the individual Jews? Well, everything. I mean, nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows everything. So he knew all about them. He knows all about you. He foreknew that they would not be a perfect people. Nothing about them. They had weaknesses. They had failures. They had their unbelief. They had their own rebellion at times, and they would worship other gods, and they got into idolatry. None of that took God by surprise. He knew what they were going to do, when they were going to do it, before they even knew it themselves. Yet, God chose them before the creation of the world to bring forth His glorious purpose and to use them to introduce our salvation through Jesus. But He also foreknew that there would always be this faithful remnant there would always be somebody even when most people turn their back there was always going to be somebody left to worship him so because of that he didn't reject him so let's look at this remnant this few people under the old covenant time all right Who were they? What was this about? So what Paul is going to do is he's going to introduce a little bit of their history here in Romans chapter 11. So let's start again back up to verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says about Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and, and I alone am left and they seek my life but what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. See, Paul is reminding his readers about the time in their history when Elijah, the prophet, was alive and what took place around his, his history. He refers to a specific place in the story of Elijah where he made an appeal to God against Israel. Now, this is an unusual prayer. I mean, most appeals to God regarding other people are intercessory prayers where we're asking God to intervene on their behalf, to do something good for them, a positive plea for them. Um, And it's the same word that is used in Romans chapter 8, verse 27 and 34, when it's used of the Spirit and of Jesus interceding for us before God in heaven. Alright? That Don't you remember that Elijah, he interceded with God? He prayed to God. He took in and says, would you get these people? Do away with them. They've rebelled against you. It's the same word that is used here in Romans about the Spirit of God pleading to God for you in a positive way. It's the same word that is used about Jesus standing before God and speaking on your behalf for your salvation. But here Elijah is pictured interceding with God for the people of Israel, telling God basically, zap them. Do away with them. They're an obstinate people. They're people who, who've turned their back on you. All right? Elijah's prayer, it goes out because of his frustration and his despair. They have a new king by the name of Ahab. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us Ahab was probably the most wicked king that there ever has been in this world. He married a beautiful lady. Her name was Jezebel. She may have been beautiful, but she was wicked and rotten to the core. All right? And and what Jezebel does is she introduces to Israel the worship not of God, whom they are His people, but she sets up areas for them to worship Baal, a God who goes against our God. Now, in the midst of all this, God in His communication with Elijah sets up a, quote, contest between Himself, God, and their God, Baal. And this takes place on a mountain on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea called Mount Carmel. And in the midst of all that's going on, there's been a drought for three years because uh, they've been so bad that God says, let's kind of get their attention. And so we have this contest that takes place. And what happens is God is victorious over these other prophets as they're trying to get their God to act because he really isn't a God. that at the end of all this, the 400 priests of Baal are slaughtered and killed. Ahab goes home and he tells his wife Jezebel, Elijah killed all your prophets. He killed all your priests. She's not too happy about that. So then Jezebel then sends a message back to Elijah and says, if you're still alive in 24 hours, I'm going to kill you myself. And may God deal with me ever so severely if it doesn't happen. So what's Elijah do? He sits down and waits, right? (laughs) I just witnessed what God has just done. He's proved himself. No, Elijah, when he gets the message from this woman, he takes off running, hiding, because he's afraid of her and what she might do to him. And so he runs and he runs and he runs all the way down south to Mount Horeb and he hides in a cave down there, right? He's discouraged, he's disillusioned, and then he makes this plea to God against Israel, and God in his answer is going to point out that Elijah has drawn a false conclusion of what he's been observing. God simply tells him, hey, you're not the only one left. I got a bunch of other guys who haven't even bowed a knee to Baal. So, after Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal and this great victory that he'd won as a contest, instead of being overjoyed, he's now depressed about the spiritual well-being of the nation of Israel. And so he complains. And his complaint really is on a personal level. So listen to what he says in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of, of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He says, I'm it, And now they're trying to kill me. God, you've lost everybody. Now... There's a word that Paul uses as he's telling this story here in, in Romans 11, verse 3. He says, I only am left. Upalipo is this word. And it's part of the family of Greek words that refer to this remnant idea. So in essence, what, Paul, or what, what Elijah is saying is, hey God, I'm the only remnant you got left in all of Israel. Everybody's left you but me. How bold of a statement do you think that is? <laughs> so God corrects him and he lets Elijah know that he's thinking way too highly of himself. <laughs> he, you know, you, you think you're all that, don't you? You're not. Matter of fact, he says, Don't worry about this, second first Kings nineteen, eighteen. He says, Yet I have seven thousand. In Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now that number seven thousand probably is a rounded off figure. Some have suggested it. Perhaps it's symbolic for uh, seven being a perfect number. So he's got everybody that he needs that he wants, whether it be seven thousand. Paul adds a word in his text: seven thousand men which indicates to us if you understand a patriarchal society they would only count the men and then they would say and women and children right so there are probably seven thousand men but there's also the women and the children maybe the, the the wives and the kids that are related to these men they probably were not surrendering and many of these were up in the northern kingdom where they had established all of this Baal worship. So why does God say, I have kept for myself these 7,000 men? He's saying that he's identified them. He knows who they are. And he has separated them for himself away from the rest of the larger group. So even at Elijah's time, under this old covenant, there is within Israel a real Israel, a true, a faithful Israel, a people who have not surrendered to other gods, who have not turned their back on him. All right. And so these are the people that Paul speaks about in Romans 9, 6. These are the one who are God's people in a special spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense, only these 7,000 really belong to God because the rest now belong to Baal. Even though most Israel had rejected God, he still counted as his own those who sought him by faith. See, this is the big key thing here. See, Abraham, he was credited as a righteous man not because of what he did, but because of his faith and his belief in God. God always wants us to put our faith in Him. It's not about what we do. So God still had His own faithful people, even in the old covenant days when it seemed like everybody was rejecting Him. Now let's jump into this new covenant era, all right? And, and what happens under this new covenant with this remnant of people? So Romans eleven five 5 and 6, He then goes on to say, For Moses, oh, sorry, wrong spot. So too, At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 5 begins, so too at the present time. Making sure that we understand that Elijah's situation still exists even in this new covenant era. God still has a remnant of faithful people among the Jews. So he has not been fully rejected by his people. There is still a group that serve him faithfully. Now, this remnant he classifies as chosen people. And they are chosen for salvation by grace. Now this is important. If you do a literal translation and take the words for they are rather than trying to put them in our English construct, it would read this way. So therefore also at this present time a remnant according to a choice of grace has become. So that raises in a question, whose choice? A choice of grace. Grace. Who's doing the choosing? All right. Does this remnant exist because God has chosen them in His grace? So here's an important point. The text does not actually say that God chose the remnant as an act of grace on His part. Although a lot of translations in our English language, they will even add the word God in there, which isn't in the original language. And leave us with the idea that this was God's glorious choice? Or does this remnant exist because the individual person within this remnant are the ones who make the choice of grace over law? Do I want to choose a relationship with God that requires a strict obedience to the law, or do I want to choose a relationship with God based upon His grace? It would be very consistent with the wording that is found in verse 5, which literally says, So therefore also at this present time a remnant according to a choice of grace has become. The text doesn't say chosen by grace, as some translations will say, but it says of grace, a choice of grace. So then it could mean that this remnant is a part of this new covenant relationship because they chose grace. Now earlier in our studies as we went through the book of Romans, we talked about grace and what it meant. That It's both an attitude and an action on God's part, not on ours. This is all that He does for us, alright? So Paul speaks here of this choice of God between Jacob and Esau. You remember that? Back in Romans nine eleven though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So God has, Paul has written about God's purpose according to his choice. And what he writes here in chapter 11 certainly recalls what he's done previously. Back in eternity as God was planning how he was going to act because he wished to be gracious to us all right, to His creation that He knew was going to enter into a, a sinful relationship in this world, God then chose to make salvation available to anyone who would be faithful to His revealed will found in Jesus. So whoever believes in Him would be saved. And they would not perish, but they would have eternal life, right? So the number of the faithful... They may be but a remnant, but God is still going to act on their behalf just as He graciously chose to do Himself before the creation of the world. So what does this choice of the remnant have to do with grace? Remember that Paul literally said that this this remnant, they came into being, they came into existence according to a choice of grace. When they chose grace, they then become His people. They become His remnant. Whether that's explicitly or implicitly applied here, Paul is saying that God foreknows who is going to choose Him by His offer of grace to them. So He knows us. It demonstrates the difference between the spiritual Israel and the physical nation of Israel. This is where it all comes into play here under this new covenant. No longer is basically because you're going to heaven because you're born Jewish. He's telling them you're going to be heaven not because you're born Jewish, but because you choose the God of the Jews to receive His grace through the Messiah that He sent into this world, Jesus And so God says He is choosing not only to save the Jews, but also anybody else who wants to put their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. That's His offer of grace. It's for anybody and everybody. Now, a person is a member of ethnic Israel, the Jewish nation, by their physical birth, but one becomes a member of this remnant of Israel only by choosing to relate to God through grace. Here's what God says. We go back to verse 6, and Paul brings us back into his conversation, his main focus in the book of Romans. The saved are not under law. It's not by what you do that's going to get you to heaven. It's about who you believe in that's going to get you there. So it's about putting our faith in Jesus, living under his grace. So in this verse, he concludes his, his little exposition on how God is acting and how he's working in this. Whether it was in Elijah's time, or whether it's Paul's time, or whether it's here in our time god works in the same way there is always a remnant who is going to exist not as a result of anything that we do but rather it's about what god has done for us so neither obedience to the law of good works or being born into israel is going to get you into heaven the saving relationship with god is all centered on what you think about jesus and how you respond to him. So it's only through God's grace and our faith in the saving work of Jesus that we find ourselves in this relationship. So let's wrap this up. Kent Hughes, in his book, Romans, Righteousness from Heaven, he's written this story about a fellow that he knows who is Jewish. All right? He says, my dean during seminary days was this brilliant Jew, Dr. Charles Feinberg. He was so intelligent that he could continue lecturing his class without missing a beat as he's talking to them about whatever subject it was and at the same time writing a note to his secretary on a different subject. Can you think of two different things at the same time? And this guy's his intelligence was there. He says, so how does this brilliant Jew come into a relationship with Christ? So he tells of the story. He says, he says, Dr. Feinberg, he graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Pittsburgh and he lived in Orthodox Jewish household. Now that household had what they called a Sabbath Gentile, all right? It was a Gentile woman who was hired to come into their house and to serve them on the Sabbath on Saturday. So they didn't do any work, right? But it's okay to hire her to come in and do the work for them because she wasn't Jewish. So this woman, while he wasn't aware of it, this woman had taken all the necessary prerequisites and rites of purification simply so she could go into their house and be a witness to them about her faith in Jesus Christ." <laughs> Undercover, right? Well, Dr. Feinberg, he was attracted to the quality of this Christian woman's life and he began to ask her questions. And all the woman, she couldn't give him all the right answers that, she, that he was asking about. She took him and introduced him to Dr. John Solomon. He was then the resident head of the American Board of the Missions to the Jews. And in meeting Dr. Solomon, Charles Feinberg was led to Jesus Christ as his Messiah. You see, he had been made thirsty. We could use the word jealous, so to speak. I mean, it was this beautiful jealousy that he had for this Christian woman and what she had in life that he wanted and he couldn't figure out what it was about her that he didn't have. You see, the church is to be like this cleaning woman. We're supposed to infiltrate our world with the grace of God. That they're jealous for what we have. And that they want what we have because of Him. So, what are you doing to make people thirsty for Christ? And this is this is our this is our our challenge is to, to show the world that we've got something to offer them that they need. And it's Jesus. What are we doing to make them thirsty for it? So they will will come and they will read His Scripture and they'll find about His love for them. Alan mentioned this revival that's taking place at Asbury. Thousands of people are going in. And this, this revival has been going on nonstop, 24 hours a day. People are trying to cram into multiple churches in that community to worship God. They're coming in from everywhere. Thousands That's happening right now in our time, and it's been going on for over 10 days. We need to be thirsty for Christ. Maybe you're the one who needs to be thirsty for what we Christians have in Christ, and you simply need to choose grace. I don't know where you are in all of this, but I'll tell you what. What He offers is better than anything you're going to get out there in this world. will you be the remnant in our generation will you be willing to go against the flow and the tide of humanity and choose christ let's pray father we are thankful oh my goodness this world has so much to offer And yet you've told us, and we've seen it with our own eyes, it's going to rust away. It's going to spoil and rot. It fades. Father, it doesn't last forever. But what you offer us through your Son Jesus is eternal. Why are we not willing to trade the temporary for that? Father, help us to to stand even against the rest of the world when they choose to go against you, that we will stand faithful no matter what. Father, help us also to realize we're not alone in this, that there are many other people who also will not bend the knee to the bales of this world, that they will be found faithful to you, and that they choose grace. Father, use us for your purpose and for your glory, to bring more people to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.